Well, as I said, this is the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany simply means revelation or manifestation. It's something that appears. And our readings tonight invite us to think about how it is that God makes himself manifest to us through the word of God. And when we read a passage like uh, Dottie read from Nehemiah, um, I think sometimes we think it seems a little bit over the top. I mean, like, really? You, like, started bowing down with your face to the ground because you heard somebody read the Bible, <laughs> right? I mean, come on, let's just get real. It sounds a little bit, like, far-fetched or, really, that's, that's what really happened? Well, maybe this would help you kind of get into the emotional background of it. Ever been really sick and so sick that you couldn't get out of bed or maybe you had an operation and you couldn't shower for a couple of days and you thought you'd get better and then two days turn into five days and you know and then somebody if you're in the hospital you know maybe a nurse is like you know kind of brushing you off with a you know a, a wet um, uh, you know towel and you're thinking well sort of but that doesn't really get it right? And before long, especially in our culture, we're just dying without a shower, right? And so maybe, you know, they finally take the bandages off or you're finally over your major flu or whatever it is and you can finally drag yourself into the shower. Can you feel that with me right now? Just the refreshing of the water and your oily, greasy, matted hair, you know, is going to have hope for a good hair day today, right? Finally. Are you feeling me here? That's what's happening here to the people of God in this story from Nehemiah. When Ezra gets up, Ezra, as the text says, is a scholar. It calls him their teacher of the law, but we would call him today something like a scholar, a biblical scholar. And he brings out the book of the law of Moses, and he begins to read it out loud, and all the people stand up. Because it's, I don't know, it's like seeing jet fighters fly over a stadium or something. It's just, in, it's instinctual in them that they feel like they're hearing the word of the person who shaped and created them, who formed them, who called them into being. And again, sometimes I think, especially those of us who come out of the evangelical world, we sometimes think of the body of Christ as a sort of a tactical, strategic entity. We, we sometimes tend to have a very utilitarian view of the body of Christ, you know, that she's sort of like a, a rake in the garage, right? That... God can just sort of pick up and use. And, and while, of course, God does want to use us and all that, that's not what these people are experiencing. They're, re they're experiencing something deeply relational. They're hearing the voice of the one who created them, and that's why if you look at your passage, it says that they listened attentively. And as they heard this word, as they had an epiphany through the word of God, it generated worship. You'll see in your text, it says that the people wept and lifted their hands saying, amen, bowing down and worshiping the Lord with their faces to the ground. So if we're gonna consider tonight for a bit the law or the Bible and how it functions in being an epiphany of God to us today, then I think we just need to reconsider a couple things. And the first one is this. The law is not meant to be a burdensome legal system. It's not like the U.S. tax code. It's not like those tedious forms you have to fill out at the doctor's office. And it's certainly not like going to the DMV, 
It's not meant to be this burdensome legal code. In fact, I'm quite sure this will surprise some of you. I, I, I wouldn't have known this number. I don't know who counts these things. I'm glad, I'm glad they do. But there are 176 references in the Old Testament praising Torah. 176 passages in the Old Testament praising the law. Now, I'm quite sure you're gonna live and die in Orange County here and not hear 1.76 praisings of the DMV, much less 176. So can you see that there was something different going on in their conscience? And I just wanna invite you to stop tonight and think about what is it that actually goes on in your conscience, if you keep it real, what is it that actually goes, in on, goes on in your conscious, your subconscious mind maybe especially, and bring it to your consciousness now when you think of the word the law? For these guys, they're in exile. They've been found, as I said, and they're hearing the voice of a loved one. And what's happening is they hear it in the same way that a shower refreshes us. They're recovering their faith. And I want you to just kind of picture this with me. They're recovering their worldview. Remember last week in the psalm, no longer we would be called desolate, divorced, set aside, you know, hopeless. So they're recovering a worldview that says, wow, I'm hearing this voice. Kind of like if you had a major breakup in junior high, you know? Or no, would you today? A major breakup in college. And you're just thinking, I'm never gonna hear anything again. And then your pocket buzzes and you dare to take out your phone. There's a little text that says, wanna talk? <laughs> and so you think, oh God, I don't know, but you do it, you know? You pick up the phone and you hear that voice. That's what these guys are experiencing. They're hearing the voice of someone who's reshaping the possibilities for their world. Like maybe this relationship isn't over after all. And so it's developing in them, positively speaking, a self-consciousness. Are you feeling me here? A self-consciousness that's different. Not rejected, in exile, despised, but actually they're being given instruction for a new way of being in the world. You know, John Calvin, who in my estimation, uh, people often think of wrongly as, you know, the, the big sort of Luther maybe, you know, the big sort of law guy, you know, who wants to beat people over the head, you know, with the law and make sure they know that, you know, unless you're elected, you're toast. Actually, you know what one of Calvin's favorite little um, imageries for the law was? A tutor. Again, can you feel that? A tutor. Someone walking alongside you, something in this case, walking alongside you, assisting you in this new way of being. And so the law is for our benefit, not our condemnation. The law was given to them. They had already lived in condemnation. They knew they had been in exile because of their sin. The law wasn't given to them to convict them of their sin. The law was given to them to renew their life in God. I wonder if you could pick up your Bible that way tomorrow morning. That it's not given to you to show you the gaps that exist between how you're presently living and God's ideal for you. They're there, I get it. 
Now, in my case, you know, I don't have any, right? I mean, come on, they're there. We all got them. I get it. But what if that's not the fundamental purpose? What if the fundamental purpose is kind of an inspiration, a shifting of your self-consciousness such that the law then becomes to you something like a tutor enabling you to, to have a new way of being in the world in the same way a tutor in algebra helps you to get, what do you call those things? Formulas. Shows you how far I got in eighth grade math. Right? But a tutor would come along and help you see this is the way these formulas actually work. Well, our psalm, if you want to look at that tonight, Psalm 19, it helps us understand this whole business of how the word of God is an epiphany to us when it helps us see that the word of God is not locked up in print on paper. Now, if anybody here comes from a kind of a fundamentalist background, that might make you nervous, so let me help you relax. The word of God is, of course, the Bible, but everybody pay attention to this. The Bible itself says that the word of God is more than what's on print in paper. Jesus says he's the word. Psalm 19 says here the heavens declare the glory of God, that the firmament, the stars, the sun, the moon are preachers of the word of God, and that this then surrounds us every day in the heavens and the skies as they become God's cosmic preachers. And then the psalm tells us that this word has a certain characteristic to it. So again, I want you tonight not to just so much hear this on the level of intellectual understanding, but rather let this shape, I pray, an imagination in you. These characteristics of the word, perfect. Just look at your paper, perfect. Pulling our lives into wholeness trustworthy, pointing out the right road for us, right, that is showing the way to joy, radiant or giving light or discernment to the eyes, and firm and righteous like God himself. And then for the psalmist, this leads to a great hour-by-hour prayer. Now, for those of you who have been, you know, sort of tracking with me and, and not just me, but the way we teach around here at Holy Trinity, if you've been tracking with us for the last months or couple of years, you'll know that we speak often about this notion of our spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. And I know that for most people, you're not gonna get anywhere with that until you have an imagination for it. And once you have an imagination for it, you're gonna need some means to actually get there. And this last part of Psalm 19, again, I want you to let your eyes fall on it, is a major little tool for me as this is for me a great hour-by-hour hour prayer. I have a conference call, and I actually do this physically. So let's say I get to the, this is often for me, I, I get to the office very early, maybe 6, 6.30, and I've got a seven o'clock conference call with somebody back east. 10 o'clock back east, seven o'clock for me. Got a little conference call. And so I sit there, and this takes seconds. And no one ever sees me do it. I don't ever do it if people can see me. But I'll just stop and say, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, and I add, the thoughts of my mind be acceptable on this phone call. Phone call's over, going into a meeting. You know, just before I open the door to go into the room, I can just say, Lord, in this meeting, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, the thoughts of my mind, acceptable in your sight. Now, what have I done? Religious trickery? 
No, all I've done is that which is most fundamental to our formation in the world, and that is to be present to your life. What hope do you have to conquer lust or anger or greed or whatever if you're not even present to it? If it's just in your subconscious mind and constantly driving you and you're not even present to it, you've got no hope to actually be a different person. Not really. And certainly not in any grace-filled way, not in any way that makes it seem like this is a, a sort of an inner transformation that's real and organic and, and makes sense. But see, when I do that, and I think of the thoughts of my mind and I realize I'm really ticked off at this guy that's gonna be on the phone or whatever. Well, see, now suddenly I'm present to the people and the events in my life and I can just say, you know, all this happens in a split second. Your mind can process mountains of information in two seconds. So in a split second, I can think, yeah, that's right, Lord, I let him off the hook. It's okay. See what I'm saying? And you can just go through your day like that. This is what these epiphanies are meant to lead to. Not mere intellectual understanding that the word of God is, a, is an epiphany to us, but it's meant to lead to the worship that we saw with Ezra and his crowd, or what we see in the psalmist here, where he essentially says, my utmost desire and want is to please God. But my greatest fear, my greatest sadness, is that I will fail to do so. So Lord, may these words that are in my mouth and this meditation that I'm engaged in about your epiphany to us in the world, may it reorder the desires and doings of my heart such that it would be pleasing in your sight. Well, okay, good enough so far, right? Except for occasionally we're all like little kids who, did your mother ever put you to bed when you were afraid of the boogeyman in the closet and say to you, or in my case, it was the boogeyman under the bed. Or actually, I slept on, I slept on bunk beds with my, my younger brother. And so I couldn't tell if ever if the boogeyman was under the bed or my younger brother on top of the bed, but there was some boogeyman somewhere, right? And your mother would try to comfort you maybe with these words, don't worry, God is with you, right? Don't worry, you'll be safe. And you all know the story of the little girl or boy who says, yeah, mom, but I just want God with skin on him. Right, like can't you stay? I just want a God with some skin on him. And this is what our gospel lesson gives us tonight. You know, you got this incredible story in Nehemiah that if we're real, kind of hard to relate to. We've got this soaring rhetoric of Psalm 19 and all the, the amazing, you know, literature about God's word. But in Jesus, in our gospel story in Luke tonight, we see that sometimes a word embodied is better than a word spoken. And that the words and works of Jesus, his, life's and his life and practices, is the most clear and most reliable word of God. Stunning as the Hubble telescope pictures are, you know, and seriously, do you ever look at them and go, there has to be a creator, right? You just look at it and go, this didn't happen by accident. Stunning as all that is, the, the most stunning, most reliable word or message or epiphany about God is in Jesus. And so Luke tells us this story, and it's interesting that Luke puts it at the front of Jesus' life, kind of showing us that Jesus was laying down markers here about what it, he was up to. So he picks up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He reads the passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, which raises a question. Why? 
Now in his baptism, no functional reason. Jesus is not a rake in the Father's garage waiting to just be picked up in those sorts of utilitarian terms. No, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is not utilitarian, but yet Jesus is saying here, there is something that me and my dad are up to. And so here is why I came. I came to proclaim good news of debts forgiven. I came to proclaim liberty to the captives, that human beings who are enslaved in every way would be freed. I came to give those who are blind sight. I came to set free the burdened and the battered and to proclaim God's year to act. Like this is it. So kind of what we saw with the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, like times a thousand. This is God's year to act. This is the beginning of the end. God is now beginning to work in history such, such that history is gonna come to its end. I've probably introduced you before to that special New Testament word, telos, which translated normally end, but it, it means more like purpose, or the completion of a purpose, something being finished that had a design to it. And the coming of Jesus is the beginning of that end, that this is now actually gonna happen. And so this passage is classic and definitive about what it is that Jesus was up to. And it's key, I would suggest to you, to understanding him. But again, if we were just to keep it real, I'll bet most of you made all the way through Sunday school without ever hearing this passage. And you may have made it through a decade in an evangelical church and never heard that this is what Jesus is really up to. What you probably heard is that he was up to paying the price for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. That's true. It's not that that's not true. It's just that Jesus himself says, this is the fundamental pattern to what I'm up to. This, if you wanna understand what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. And so cross and resurrection fits into this. What stunned the people of Jesus' day and his first followers who in the decades after him tried to think through what this meant, especially faithful Jews, is that they were stunned in the way in which the Messiah came. This was messianic language he was reading in the scroll. They all knew it. They had heard this passage read probably since they were little kids, maybe have heard it read a hundred times. And they knew that this was hopeful messianic language. And so the thought that God would pay off debts, you know, release the oppressed, the thought that he would do all that when he came, they got it. And in their minds, they were the oppressed ones. And then Jesus comes and he starts doing it to lepers and Samaritans and outsiders and the marginalized and the least, the last, and the left out. And the Jews are all saying, wait a minute, you're saving the wrong people. You were supposed to come save us. What was stunning was who Jesus did it to and how he did it through cross and resurrection. So cross and resurrection, you might think, is sort of the cosmic application, the total application of all that God intends to do for all the created world. All that will happen because of cross, because of resurrection. See, we're used to asking this question, what does God demand for righteousness? We're used to asking who is a sinner and who is saved. But what about this question? Who is it that needs attention? Who is it that needs mercy? 
Who is it that needs our compassion? Now you say, I know, that's what the liberals do. That's sort of their domain. Mm, No, sorry, that's the domain of Jesus. Now granted, they got on that like a dog, like a bone, because it was a way of denying certain things about Jesus. But the fact that the liberal church got onto that as a way of denying things like divinity or, you know, issues of salvation does not mean that that's a liberal cause. That's actually the cause of Jesus. And in fact, if you remember last week, if you're here, we, we read the passage from 1 Corinthians 12 about the gifts of the Spirit. This is a great passage to answer the question that we could have asked last week when I was talking about gracelets. Remember that? Little drops of grace. If you were wondering last week when you were here, what is the purpose of gifts? What is the purpose of these little manifestations of power and grace? What are they for? Well, this passage being, sorry for the big word on a Saturday night, paradigmatic, you know. This passage being the pattern of what God and his people are up to tells you the answer that gifts are little capacities to fit your life into this story. So that when you're somewhere where somebody needs attention or compassion and mercy and you find yourself bankrupt, maybe God will give you a gift of healing in that moment. And therefore you can be compassionate and merciful and attentive to someone. So bringing this in for a landing tonight, Annie Dillard, who's uh, not what we would call a highly uh, reliable uh, source on all things standardly Christian, does occasionally get things beautifully right, and uh, this is one of them. Uh, Dillard writes, you know, thinking of what we do here on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, and thinking of these passages we read tonight, uh, listen to, to Dillard as she says, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It's madness, she's dating herself here, it's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. And this is what happens when we genuinely experience an epiphany. An epiphany, by, by definition, is the capacity to see something that you've never seen before, or at least to see it in a way that you've never seen it before. This is what happens when Jesus rolls up the scroll, hands it back to what they called the president, what we'd call the priest, and goes and sits down, and every eye in the room is fixed on him. And of course, you know, we don't know exactly how this happened. You have to kind of read between the lines. Um, but it's all maybe Jesus recognizes that everybody's staring at him. And he says, today, this reading is making history. This is history being made right in your hearing. That's the impact of what he's saying. He's saying something like, today, this ordinary meeting of synagogue This scripture that was just read is coming true. And so maybe as we have a quiet moment now, we might think, how is it that the scripture we just read is coming true and transforming my life? 
How is it that it might come true as it makes me an agent of God's kingdom and his agenda as we see it in the words and works of Jesus? How might we say the scripture we just read is coming true and transforming in my life? And it's coming true in me such that it's making me an agent of God's kingdom agenda as we see it in the words and works of Jesus. Amen.